All right, guys. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, Jeff with a G, so one of those Jeffs. Um, and uh, it's not Gioff. I'm not like a foreign exchange student or something. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so I know Landon. Uh, we go way back. Does like two, the year 2000 count as way back, like back in the day? Sure, why not? Um, and so I was in Landon's youth group when he was a, just a lowly youth pastor at Calvary Chapel, Appleton. Um, went to Bible college with Brian. Uh, me and David in the back would geek out over like Christian punk rock back in the day, um, go to Life Fest and stuff. So uh, it's like a reunion for me. Um, and I'm just so thankful to be here to share a bit about uh, what we've been up to. So uh, my name is Jeff. Uh, that's my wife, Arielle, back there. Um, and the cute, chubby, one-month-old baby, uh, his, his name is August, um, or Augie, if you will. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so we're happy to be here. And, um, and so we actually worked with Campus Crusade, or crew, at uh, St. Norbert College for about a good five years. And uh, Freedom Fellowship actually supported us as missionaries, so I was just really thankful for that. And now we've kind of got a new venture cooking here. Um, so we're working with Ratio Christi, and it's a student apologetics alliance. Um, and uh, let me share with you, uh, well, how this is going to work, is I'm going to share with you a little bit about the ministry itself and, and what the need is for it, and then I'm going to do a, a little case for the resurrection of Jesus, so we get to put our thinking caps on and actually do some apologetics and think through how would we actually defend our faith um, and make an argument for Jesus. Um, so first thought is, why would you need something like a student apologetics alliance? Or how many of you guys know what the term apologetics means? Right? It doesn't mean to say you're sorry a lot, <laughs> like constantly apologizing. Apologetics is just um, a old school word that means to, to defend something or to make a defense, kind of how a lawyer would make a defense in a court case. So what's the problem? Why might we need this? Well, um, to start out here, um, how many of you guys have heard of Richard Dawkins? Um, and about 10 to 15 years ago, there's this thing that sprang up called the New Atheism Movement. Um, and it's, it's a bunch of very vocal atheists, or people who don't believe in God, who've been writing a whole slew of books. Um, and it's been tremendously popular with our youth. Um, and uh, there's even been sort of an atheist campus group called the Secular Student Alliance, kind of like the atheist answer to Campus Crusade. Um, and uh, Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. Um, and this book was just a New York Times bestseller. And it's been real sad. I met a student at St. Norbert who completely walked away from his faith through reading this book. Um, and so this is what Dawkins has to say. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, or perhaps even because of, the lack of evidence. So he says, you Christians, it's all blind faith. No reasons, um, no truth, it's just blind faith, feelings, and emotions, and that's it. And a lot of students have unfortunately really bit onto that sort of thinking. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of this guy, um, but Bart Ehrman, um, is a very famous New Testament scholar. Um, and if you ever go to, for example, the Barnes & Noble um, section um, with the Christian books there, you'll see his books all over the place. And Bart Ehrman um, 
was he went to Wheaton College and to Moody Bible Institute and eventually lost his faith at Princeton Seminary. Um, and ever since then, he's been writing almost a book a year against the Bible and against the Christian faith. Uh, his most famous there is misquoting Jesus, where he doesn't think our Bible has been copied properly throughout the years. Um, and um, little story here. We were just recently in uh, New Orleans for some staff training with this group. And um, we heard about a student who, uh, you know in church, there's always that one student who's like involved in everything. Like they're inducted into church activities from birth, right? Um, they go to Awanas and Sunday school and missions trips. They're like the poster child. Well, we heard about a student who was, who, who was that kid, super involved, passionate about his faith. Well, he decides to go to college, like most kids, and he decides to go to UNC Chapel Hill, home of the Tar Heels, right? And guess what his very first class was? It was New Testament 101 with Dr. Bart Ehrman. This kid walks away from his faith in one week. One week. So it raises this important question. How can 18 years of religious training be wiped away in one week? And the answer is, maybe sometimes our, our youth aren't really getting the training that they need to defend their faith and know why they believe and really be grounded in the truth of their faith. Things about confident in how we know God exists, the reliability of scripture. Why should we think Jesus rose from the dead? Um, and that's kind of where we come in. We kind of want to help foster a renaissance of Christian thinking at, at the university um, and in the local church. And we know that this is a huge problem. Because I don't know if you've heard of these stats before, but uh, various sociological studies and books have shown that 51 to 80% of professing Christian students lose their faith in college, walk away. And I've seen it myself. I was working with Campus Crusade and had a student who, um, who uh, I was discipling for, for a number of years and comes to me senior year and says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. And, it was, and so instead of doing Bible study, we're talking about the existence of God. Um, and these studies have really found that one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons why they walk away is because of intellectual skepticism. And this skepticism often begins in high school and is, it tends to not be addressed a lot. Like they'll ask the youth pastor a question and he'll say, well, you just need to have faith, right? We don't ask those kind of questions here. And what does that tell them? That there really aren't any answers, right? Um, so this is a serious problem. Some people have called this the youth exodus. Um, and um, so fortunately, um, there actually is good news. Because even in spite of these challenges, I don't know if, if you've heard of this, but the evidence supporting the Christian worldview, I think, has never been stronger. So in the past couple decades, there's been a renaissance of Christian apologetics and scholarship. So it seems to me the evidence keeps getting better and better, but the students keep dropping off like flies. So we want to kind of bridge those two and get students the information that they need. Um, and uh, a big part of this is really training students in apologetics and helping them think through their faith in a safe environment. Um, so a little bit about what our group is called. Um, it's called uh, Ratio Christi. That sounds like a weird name, but that's just Latin for the reason of Christ. And it was started by students at Appalachia State uh, in Boone, North Carolina um, in 2007. So we're about 10 years old. 
uh, partially in response to the new atheism movement. Basically, students on campus were just getting beat up uh, from their professors, from their non-Christian students. I mean, not literally. Um, <laughs> and they were uh, just being challenged, and they wanted to start a group where they could really buckle down and really research and understand what it was they believed, and also to invite their non-Christian friends to ask those questions, too. So we're serving on over 160 campuses in the U.S. and abroad. And as of right now, I'm, I think I'm the only Rosho Christie staff in the state, so we're just launching a whole new thing here. Um, and so what are we looking to do? What would this look like on campus? Well, we're really hoping to change the game on campus by, uh, number one, examining the truth of Christianity, exploring uh, current scientific, philosophical, and historical evidence in weekly meetings. Two, uh, helping students understand and engage the important ideas of the day. Number three, Demolishing the false dichotomy of faith and reason, that you don't have to pick one or the other, and that's a really common thing. And four, obviously the whole point of this is to share the gospel with non-Christians in an intellectually stimulating environment. So it's kind of a, it's an academic campus ministry for an academic environment. Um, and um, so we think blind faith is lame, <laughs> and we want to take back the mind of the university and the local church for a Christ. Um, and at the end, I'll share a, a, a little bit of what we're doing right now locally. Um, so I thought it would be fun to give a bit of an apologetics example, kind of maybe not your average sermon, but just to pop our thinking caps on and, and to look at how would, how would someone go about making a case for the resurrection of Jesus, right? Kind of an important thing, right? Um, and so how would we be able to explain this to someone who's not a Christian, um, and uh, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of dive into the evidence. So you guys ready? You good? All right, sweet. Um, so um, we know uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is kind of like a ground zero text for the resurrection. Um, this is what Paul says. He says, Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. This is a really profound statement. Paul's saying, um, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead... Just go home. It's all over. Um, and uh, if we don't have a risen Jesus, he's basically saying Christianity is false. And this is also kind of key, too, because Paul's not saying, hey, here's how I know Jesus rose from the dead. Just have faith. Just believe. No. He actually goes on to explain that, well, he's, the reason why Jesus rose from the dead is because I saw him, because I touched him. I was with him. And so did the disciples. Um, and so we know that this is key because... A dead Savior can't save anyone, okay? So if we believe Jesus is the Savior, it's not going to help us very much if he's, you know, dead. <laughs> um, and if he's just simply dead, um, well, then he just is basically on the same level as guys like Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna or any other charismatic religious leader or Gandhi who, who did great things but then just died. Um, and so dead Savior can't save anyone. And so let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 18. And I got it on the, on the screen here. Um, and this is a really important text. Um, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. But let's read it. So this is Paul speaking. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received. So even stopping there, think about that. He's saying, here's the number one thing I want you to know. First importance, number one, top of the docket, is this that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 
and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is an incredibly important text. Um, and especially when it comes to apologetics, defending your faith, it's really crucial. And let me tell you why. So, in the past 200 years, there's been this thing that's risen called uh, like critical biblical scholarship, or some people call it like liberal theology. The Bible's really come under attack in the past 200 years, especially in Germany and places like that. And one of the things that they'll say is, is that um, the resurrection and a lot of the narratives of Jesus in the gospel are so late that we can't actually know if they're really historical. Or they're so late and so um, embellished that they're probably just kind of uh, myths that sprung up within the church. Um, and so they want to push the dating of the Gospels and the New Testament as late as possible to make sure that... Um, that it shows that it's not historical. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, what we just read, really throws a wrench into that. Um, because 1 Corinthians was written around 55 AD. Okay? So you've got the Gospels in, in roughly the 60s, right? First century written. But there are sources for the life of Jesus prior to that. And that's the writings of Paul. Um, and so 55 AD was when 1 Corinthians 15 was written, and Jesus died, some scholars say, 30 to 33 AD. You could take your pick. So even when we look at what we just read, we're looking at only a 20-year gap. Only 20 years. Um, and for ancient history, that's like a gold mine. 20 years is, is an extremely good period to have something happen and then have somebody write about it. Um, but it gets even better. You just wait. Um, and uh, it's, what we just read is considered by scholars, uh, most scholars, to be a very early Christian creed. Like you've heard of creeds, right? Not the 90s rock band. Don't listen to them. Um, I'm, I'm talking about creeds, like the Nicene Creed that some churches recite, um, the Athanasian Creed about the um, doctrine of the Trinity. Um, well, some people think that this is a creedal formula, a tradition that goes way back. Um, so why do they think this? Well, in the Greek and in the original language, there are some Aramaic words, which was the original language that Jesus spoke. It has kind of a rabbinic structure to it, like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So it has kind of a, a rhythmic structure. Um, if you notice in the beginning, Paul said, like, like, I am delivering to you that which I first received. Okay, And that's kind of language that rabbis would use to pass on a really important tradition delivered and received type language. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons as well. Um, so how early, how far back does this creed go? Well, I'm going to read you guys a quote. The elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus. You hear that, and you should be like, what? First two years? Um, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 falls into the time between 30 and 33 CE. Well, when's that? That's the Passion Week. That's, that's ground zero. That's, that's when Jesus died. Now, guess who said that? That's Gerd Ludemann, a German atheistic New Testament scholar. So this guy doesn't believe in God. Um, he's real skeptical. But he says, yep, this information goes right back to the beginning. So you've got to... Uh, 
Jesus' Passion Week, right after that, the core gospel message was formulated. So what we can know from this, what the take-home is, is that there was no time for slow mythical embellishment. You've got the core gospel elements being set in place immediately, and, and that solidified into a solid tradition that made its way into 1 Corinthians 15. Does this make sense? Right. So you want to try and take the gospel message and make it as early as possible. And you can't get any earlier than like months after Jesus died. Um, So that's a really important thing to remember here. So we're not dealing with some kind of slow mythical development, like the life of Buddha, where the sources written about him are like hundreds of years later and we can't sift uh, uh, fact from myth. So carrying on... um, Okay, there it is. Um, Go back. My computer's getting all wonky here. Um, So what I'm going to cover briefly is what's called the minimal facts argument. And this is basically what I like to call a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose argument. Um, So if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, Jesus rose from the dead. If you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, Jesus still rose from the dead. So it's an argument that goes through independently of what you think of inspiration, right? It, it basically looks at core historical facts that hopefully any reasonable person should be able to grant. Like, for example, I don't believe in Islam, but there are a number of key historical facts about the life of Muhammad that I would concede, right? Um, so the majority of scholars, about 75% or more, and most people don't know this, this is shocking, crazy stuff. The, the majority of scholars, and I'm talking agnostics, atheists, uh, whoever, would grant, they would say, yep, this happened. Um, and so let's go through all of them. Most people would say, yep, Jesus died of crucifixion. So almost nobody disputes the idea that Jesus died on a cross. Unfortunately, Muslims do, and the Koran does, but that's a problem that they face. Um, um, so Jesus died of crucifixion. Um, number two, Jesus' tomb was empty, and, and his corpse went missing. So most people, about 75% of scholars, would grant that the empty tomb is a real thing. Okay? They don't think Jesus rose from the dead, but they say, yeah, the empty tomb, we'll give you that. Um, Number three, almost unanimously, this is pretty crazy, the disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, they don't say they actually saw the risen Jesus, but they say, hey, something happened. They thought they saw the risen Jesus. Most people have rejected the whole um, conspiracy theory. Um, They think that, yep, the disciples, whatever they taught, they were genuine, they were sincere. They actually believed that they had experiences of a physically risen Jesus. Pretty amazing, huh? Um, Most people think that this is all just kind of uh, really sketchy stuff, but it's pretty solid. Uh, Number four, skeptics James and Saul of Tarsus had a dramatic change of heart. So James is the brother of Jesus. Um, Most people think that he was a skeptic. He really didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Um, And it's kind of fun with this one. Quick question, how many guys have brothers? What would it take for you to think that your brother is God incarnate and the Messiah? Right? If he starts going around saying he's God, the I am statement, you'd be like, bro, you're crazy, man. Got to get you checked out. Um, so we think about it. James is the brother of Jesus, but then Jesus goes around doing all this crazy stuff. He makes you wonder, what does his brother think of him? <laughs> um, I mean, back, we know from the Gospels, like half the people in his town thought he was crazy. Um, and, 
and we know Saul of Tarsus also was obviously a persecutor, extreme skeptic, uh, but he had a dramatic change of heart. So you got these guys kind of converting on a dime, and you got to kind of explain what caused them to convert. Uh, five, the disciples preached the message of Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. Okay, so it's not like they preached the resurrection over in Rome or some other part of the empire. They decided to say that this happened in the very city where Jesus was said to have roamed and taught and spoke. Okay, um, not very advantageous if you're trying to tell a lie. Uh, number six, Orthodox Jews who believed in Christ and the Sabbath made Sunday their primary day of worship. Um, so all of a sudden they just switched their day of worship from, uh, I believe it was Saturday to Sunday. And seven, as many of you know, uh, most of Jesus' di disciples died from brutal martyrdom. So they sealed their testimony with their deaths. Um, doesn't mean that it's automatically true, but they sincerely believed it enough to die for it. Nobody let the cat out of the bag that they just made it up um, under torture. So these minimal historical facts are things that most scholars, skeptical or not, will say, yep, this happened. Okay? Um, and most people don't, uh, don't know that. So if somebody says the Bible's all false, it's, it's all a bunch of lies, well, that's not really an educated or academic perspective. Okay? Um, so what do we do with these facts? How are we going to roll with this? Well, um, we have to ask the question, what best explains these facts, okay? So what you got to do is get your uh, Sherlock Holmes pipe out, get your cool hat on, right? How many of you guys watch like CSI Miami and like crime shows? It's just fun to like watch shows where they figure out who done it. Um, and this is kind of what you do. So imagine you're a detective. Somehow these cops always have coffee always they're drinking coffee i need my coffee in the morning so i understand where they're coming from so they're walking into the crime scene there's a dead body some guy got shot or there's like he's got like a samurai sword in his heart or something i don't know that's probably too gruesome for a sunday talk um but so so we so we we've we've got a dead guy and there's numbers all around the crime scene right so the, the numbers are facts things about the crime scene that need to be accounted for um and that's kind of how you should view those minimal facts. Things on the crime scene that we need to find a hypothesis for. So a lawyer in court will seek to craft a hypothesis to either um, uh, show that their client is not guilty or to judge another person as guilty. So let's roll out the usual suspects. Okay, So we've got uh, a whole bunch of different hypotheses or explanations to uh, make sense of this, this uh, large body of data. So let's just go through them. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through them, and then I'm going to pick one that we're going to look at. So number one, maybe the disciples, the Romans, or the Jews stole the body. So maybe somebody just took the body. Because Jesus' body was never found, so maybe the disciples, the, the Romans, or Jews, for some unknown reason, took the body. And that was kind of an older theory back in the day. Uh, secondly, the old, uh, this is a theory from the 1800s called the swoon theory, right? Because in order for Jesus to rise from the dead, he's actually got to die, right? So maybe, so maybe Jesus, uh, you know, swooned. They fed him like some kind of secret potion that, uh, that caused him to go into like a catatonic state. And then he, in the cool, damp tomb, he arose. And somehow, even though he's all bloody and like shredded to bits, he like appeared to the disciples as the miraculous, glorious Messiah. Okay. Um, number three is mass hallucination or grief-induced visions, which we'll talk about. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe Peter and the gang, 
they just forgot where the tomb was. And so they're walking around and they go, oh, we got a problem here, guys. Looks like he's gone. Let's just say he rose from the dead. I mean, that's probably the best way to cover this thing up, okay? Um, you know, as if they wouldn't be able to find the right tomb. Um, and, um, number five, maybe it was a conspiracy or a cover-up. Maybe they just made the whole thing up for ulterior motives, maybe money or some underhanded deals. Um, I don't know. Um, six, uh, now this one is really popular with college students and high school students. It's all the rage. It's really dumb, but it's all the rage. Um, and uh, maybe the disciples used ideas from ancient pagan mystery religions. So you've got the myth of Osiris, and you've got ancient Egyptian mythology of people rising from the dead and going to the underworld. Some people, maybe the disciples just kind of ripped that off. Maybe Jesus just a recycled redeemer, right? Um, and so some people actually think that this is a good one, that um, maybe Jesus was just copied from the myth of Horus. And so all we have in the, in the Bible is just kind of another recycled myth, like Egyptian mythology. Okay. Um, number seven, maybe it was aliens. right? Maybe Jesus was an alien. Okay. Um, and uh, so... And there are a couple more, but uh, and number eight, well, maybe Jesus actually rose from the dead. Maybe that original hypothesis was the correct one. So we don't have time to go through all of these. We could be here all day. Uh, but I'm going to zero in on one, one of the more popular ones, which is number three. That's mass hallucination. So one of the most popular explanations is that the disciples saw Jesus, but they just saw him in their minds, right? They just saw him subjectively. Um, so they experienced him subjectively that's in their minds through a vision or some kind of hallucination. Okay? Another idea is that the disciples had grief-induced visions of Jesus, which some of you may have even had this. So my, when my grandpa died, my grandma thought she saw my grandpa in his favorite chair because she was grieving for him. And sometimes we see what we want to see when we're in a deep uh, emotional or psychological state, okay? So maybe it was like that. Maybe they were so upset about the death of their rabbi that, that they all just collectively saw him. They projected what they wanted to see, okay? Um, and so this is a very popular one. Um, some people even say that, uh, well, maybe they actually saw Jesus, but it was just Jesus in heaven. Some people call this Jedi Jesus. So do you remember in Star Wars when um, like, like Darth Vader and, and all the gang is there on, on the planet of Endor, and they're kind of all ghostly, and Luke Skywalker's like, hey, guys. Um, maybe they just saw Jesus as, as like a ghastly Jedi vision. I don't know. Um, not that the disciples believed in Star Wars. But, um, so so let's, think, let's think through this one, Okay. What are some reasons to really question the hallucination hypothesis? Well, first one is that it explains the appearances, but not the empty tomb. So it covers a little bit of ground in that it highlights one piece of the data, but it doesn't cover all the data. Okay? The way uh, apologists put it is that it, uh, it doesn't have broad explanatory scope, that it, its range isn't really good. If you're trying to explain the crime scene, you can't just explain one piece of the data. You've got to have an overarching hypothesis. Um, next is that it could have been easily refuted by just producing Jesus' dead body. <laughs> so if, if you're saying, my grandpa rose from the dead, I saw him, and then you just take him to the grave site, there he is, you know, case closed. <laughs> you actually didn't see your grandpa, he's, he's still dead. But nobody ever produced the dead body of Jesus. Um, 
And probably the most uh, scathing rebuttal here would be that hallucinations are private and subjective and cannot be experienced in groups. Okay? There's no such thing as group hallucinations, right? Or think of it like, how many of you guys have like, really vivid dreams? Right? What if you said, honey, oh, this dream is crazy. Come and join me. Join my dream. Let's dream together. Like, well, you can't have like, group dreams. Dreams are private, subjective things that are only in, in your vision that you can see. Um, and uh, we also know that hallucinations typically don't produce long-lasting beliefs in the person experiencing them. Like my grandma didn't think from her grief-induced vision that my grandpa was still alive and then, went li and then lived the rest of her life preaching the idea that he was still there. She, she could recognize the difference between a hallucination and a lucid state. Okay, so, so, so even if somebody has a hallucination, they can really differentiate, whoa, that was weird. I mean, it's not, it's not real, but that was weird. Um, and another point, too, is that if they did hallucinate, because remember, we're dealing with first century Jewish people. They pro you can only hallucinate that which is already in your mind and in your psyche. If they would have hallucinated, they probably would have seen Jesus as a glorified figure in heaven, like Elijah or Abraham. Not somebody who had already received a resurrection body. So in, in ancient Jewish thinking, the resurrection was a corporate thing that happened to everybody at the end of the world. Not to a single individual uh, right in the middle of history. So they probably wouldn't even have seen him as this physical corpse. So there's a whole bunch of other reasons we could look at. But... Um, Good, really, I've got a really good quote here from Doug Powell. He's a Christian thinker. Um, he says, the possibility of several different people having the exact same hallucination in the exact same way at the exact same time is extremely unlikely to say the least, let alone 12 or even 500 people at once. Because it gets even shakier because in the First Corinthians narrative, it says Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once. Okay, 500 people all having the same hallucination? You know, what kind of LSD are they taking? I don't know, man. Um, uh, so um, it seems like whatever they were seeing, like it was a real thing. And now we don't have time to go through all the different options, but you can kind of do the same thing, and you can whittle it down to the point where the only real plausible explanation is the original one that, that they gave, that, that it was a risen Jesus. Okay, so that's, the, that's a brief look at the historical evidence, okay? And we could be here for a long time. But here's my hunch. I think one of the main reasons why people are really skeptical about the, about the resurrection is not because of the historical evidence, but because of a philosophical rejection of miracles, or what's called anti-supernaturalism, or basically a worldview such as atheism that doesn't allow miracles in it, okay? And uh, some people would call this what's called an a priori objection, okay? So if you're doing a posteriori objections, that's looking at the facts and objecting based on the data itself. But an a priori objection is basically saying, it doesn't matter what the facts say, um, dead men don't rise, right? So basically, since we know that science says that dead people don't rise, therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Right? So they kind of stack the deck from the beginning um, in order to dismiss any of the data. And uh, side note here, a lot of people follow the arguments of Scottish philosopher David Hume, okay? and he wrote his famous book on miracles. 
Uh, for example, Christopher Hitchens here, famous atheist, uh, he's looking very skeptical in, in this photo, right? He's got the cigar. You know, you're real skeptical when you have the collar flipped up, right? Um, so um, he says, assuming a miracle is a favorable change in the natural order, the last word on the subject was written by Scottish philosopher David Hume. Okay, so he's had a really big influence there. Um, now, how many of you guys have heard of the Jesus Seminar? Well, the Jesus Seminar was kind of this um, 80s think tank group of scholars, and a lot of uh, colleges are really uh, in love with these guys. Um, they're just a, very, just a group of really skeptical scholars who they basically concluded after their study that Jesus only said 2% of the things in the gospel. So everything else was just sort of made up or kind of a myth of the church. So, this, so these guys are real skeptical. But I think uh, so one of the main guys is John Dominic Crossan, a uh, really world-famous New Testament scholar. And he kind of plays his hand here. This is what he says. He says, The contemporary religious controversy turns on whether the worldview reflected in the Bible can be carried forward into the scientific age and retained as an article of faith. The Christ of creed and dogma can no longer command the, the assent of those who have seen the heavens through Galileo's telescope. So, so what he's saying is that now that we are more enlightened, uh, that we have science, we can pretty much assume that all of the miracles, deity of Christ, is just bunk. We can just reject that out of hand. And unfortunately, that assumption guides a lot of their scholarship. So this guy, Richard Dawkins, again, he's busting out that real skeptical face, too. Um, um, he says, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. So notice, this is a priori. This is be even before you look at the facts, they're just saying, nope, dead men don't rise. I don't need, don't bother me with the evidence. Um, we know that those sorts of things don't happen, okay? So I think that this is one of the reasons why this, uh, there can be a lot of skepticism sur surrounding this. Um, so, a bit of a quote here, and I think uh, there's a New, a New Testament scholar named R.T. France, and he really nails it on the head here. That's what he says. He says, at the level of their literary and historical character, we have good reason to treat the Gospels seriously as a source of information on the life and teaching of Jesus. Indeed, many ancient historians would count themselves fortunate to have four such responsible accounts as the Gospels written within a generation or two of the events and preserved in such a wealth of early manuscript evidence. Basically saying, hey, the historical reliability of the Bible is solid. It's really good. Most historians should, should be stoked that we have this much good evidence. Um, he says, beyond that point, the decision to accept the record they offer, and here's the kicker, is likely to be influenced more by an openness to a supernaturalist worldview than by strictly historical considerations. So what's he saying there? He's saying history, the facts, sometimes doesn't really matter. It's more about a person's openness to the idea of a miracle and the idea of there being a God who acts in history. Okay. So how do we deal with this? Well, an important principle is this, and this is really important to remember. If there's a God who acts, then there can be acts of God. Okay, so a lot of the question of miracles and supernatural stuff really depends upon if there's a God at all to do these things, right? Because that's, that's what we mean by a miracle. It's, it's a sign that God does to confirm something. Um, and so what we do at Ratio Christi with students is we really spend a ton of time on arguments and reasons for the existence of God. 
and the existence of miracles. So we go through a battery of evidence and arguments and reasons, like fine-tuning from physics, uh, the beginning of the, of the universe, and arguments for creation, a transcendental argument, the ontological argument, argument from design, showing that it's more likely that our bodies, our Earth, our planet, our universe is a product of deliberate engineering and not blind chance. Okay, Moral evidence that our moral experience, ethics, seems to really point to a moral lawgiver and that um, we're dealing with something that's been bestowed by God. Um, so we give a whole bunch of different arguments. And, and so the more likely it is that God exists, the more likely it is that God has acted in history to do miracles. So there's a one-to-one correspondence there. I think arguments from creation are really good, too. Because if you can admit that there's a creator who made everything, well, then raising somebody from the dead, walking on water. It's chump change, right? It's like an argument from the greater to the lesser. If I, can bench press, or if I can bench press 300 pounds, which I can't, then automatically I can bench press 100 pounds, right? Um, so if you, if you got a God who literally made everything, well, then little miracles here and there is just no problem, especially if he's the one who created the natural order and the laws themselves, right? So a lot of this hinges on whether or not there's a God, and I think there's good reason for that. All right, so wrapping it up here, um, some people say, okay, so what? Why does it matter if Jesus rose from the dead? You know, some guy raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, how does this affect my life? Um, how does this uh, really impact things? Well, let's take, a look, let's take a look at two categories here, apologetic implications and theological implications. So if Jesus rose from the dead, number one, it confirms Jesus' radical divine claims about himself. So if you've ever read the Gospels, Jesus made some crazy claims about himself. Like he's the I am, before Abraham was I am. Um, basically he's God and that your eternal destiny depends upon what you do in believing in him. Who, who talks like that, <laughs> right? And so Jesus made some really like, like high-level claims. Well, anybody can make those claims. If your brother starts making those claims, you think you're crazy, man. But if he rises from the dead and he prophesied he would and then actually does it, you're like, okay, well, maybe there's some legitimacy here. Um, so it helps confirm his radical claims about himself. And one thing a lot of people don't think about is that the cross and the resurrection also provides a response to the problem of evil and suffering. Now, how is that the case? Well, what it shows is that if God incarnate was literally on the cross, that means that we worship a suffering God. We, we worship a God who has deluged himself into pain and suffering, humiliation, psychological pain. And so God literally knows what it's like to go through the ringer. And so we worship a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted also. So it also shows that pain and suffering can and is redeemed, okay? That it doesn't end with the pain, but God can and does redeem it, okay? Next, it provides a response to world religions and religious pluralism. Because if you line up Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, Gandhi, whoever, and put Jesus in there, I mean, all those other guys are dead. <laughs> um, but Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and it really gives him a leg up and shows that uh, we're not dealing with sort of this flat plane of all religions are the same, but Christianity really has um, a powerful response there. And also, it serves as evidence for God, I think, and evidence for the Bible's inspiration. Because there's a good argument that everything God says is true. Jesus is God, therefore, whatever Jesus says is true. So you ask the question, well, what did Jesus say and believe? Well, Jesus had a really high view of Scripture. 
So we should have a high view of Scripture as well. Um, so Jesus believed the Bible is the Word of God, uh, therefore it is. So uh, there's some apologetic implications, theological ones. I think it confirms Jesus' identity as the divine Messiah. It helps bring together all those prophecies about him and show him that he really is um, God's chosen one, God's anointed one. It helps solve the problem of death and mortality. Okay? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Um, and uh, death has been swallowed up by immortality. So we're all going to die. And that's a problem that we all face. Um, but Jesus' resurrection ensures that uh, when we die and if we believe in him, we'll be resurrected in the same way as well. Um, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Um, and he, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Um, and it also completes and secures our salvation. Interesting verse in uh, Romans 4, Paul says that Jesus was raised for your justification. Okay? So Jesus didn't just die for your sins, he also rose for your sins. Um, and so it completes our salvation and also serves as really the foundation of the Christian life and is the heart of the gospel. Um, it turns out the heart of the gospel is one of the most well-evidenced things in the ancient world. Um, and so we can uh, proclaim this to people not as just an article of faith, as an emotional thing. But we can say, no, this, this actually happened. There's good reasons. Um, and many people have come to Christ through really looking at the evidence. You think of guys like Lee Strobel, who wrote the Case for Christ books, really researched this stuff, and he's like, whoa, this, this stuff's actually legit. Like, it seems like Jesus might have actually risen from the dead. All right. Um, so if we go to the next slide here, just some resources to check out if this uh, kind of wo has whetted your appetite. Um, good book here, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead by Dr. William Lane Craig. I think it's like a dollar on Kindle. Um, um, the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, really good. I actually teach at Providence Academy. It's a, a Christian classical school um, in Green Bay, and this is what my students go through in their apologetics class. And a couple other books as well. So yeah, thank you so much for uh, bearing with me here, <laughs> um, and, um, and uh, with the work we'll be doing um, with Rosho Christie, I'm excited to see what God's going to do with it, and, and hopefully we can foster a renaissance of Christian thinking at the university, and through that, really help proclaim the gospel in Northeast Wisconsin. Um, and so we're looking to hopefully uh, launch things maybe at UWGB, maybe UW Oshkosh, Lawrence, kind of wherever God opens the door. Um, so to, so um, I think there was an usher uh, who, who had some contact cards. So what we're doing right now is we're kind of local missionaries, and we're just raising support. Um, we are uh, developing a team of partners and raising the funds to help us um, be supported enough to do this full-time in the area. So this is where you can help, and we really need your help. Um, we're about a a third of the way through our financial goals. And uh, basically, fill out the contact card, and we'd love to give you a, a call maybe tonight or tomorrow. And uh, we'd love to meet with you sometime this week or next week just to share a bit more about the ministry that we're doing um, and to invite you to be on our team of partners. Um, and, uh, or even if you know you can't give, maybe you know of some other people who would be excited to hear about it. Because we're just trying to spread the word as far as we can, because it's a fairly new thing. Um, so, yeah, fill that out, and then I guess you can just put it on that little back table there. Um, with, I've got some free stuff back there, too, some postcards and whatnot. So, yeah, hopefully this uh, encouraged you. Um, 
And I find learning about this stuff can really give Christians confidence to really uh, be well-grounded in what they believe and why they hold to it. So, yeah, why don't we pray to the risen Jesus, um, and then we can wrap it up. So, uh, we thank you, Lord, so much um, that you didn't just stay on the cross, but you also rose from the dead, and that from it, that's the foundation of the gospel, it's the foundation of our salvation, and that through that, we can be justified, we can be totally clean through you, and I just thank you so much that we're in you, and that um, you love us so much that you um, came and became one of us and uh, lived a, a life on earth um, and got brutally murdered just because you love us. Um, and I uh, thank you that you help those gospel truths to be more ingrained in our hearts and help us to love you better, uh, all the while realizing that you love us even more. Um, so we thank you so much, Lord, and uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen.